Romans 5, 12 to 21. This is God's word for us, his people. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of, one, of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So tonight we're going to look at this text in three parts. We'll start by looking at sin and how it spreads to Adam's descendants. Then we'll look at what the law does for us in our sinful condition. And finally we'll focus on what Adam gave us and what Christ gives us. So first for tonight, we'll look at what verse 12 tells us about whether sin is a choice or a condition. Now this passage from Romans 5 assumes that we have in mind the story of Adam and Eve's fall in Genesis 3. You probably know that story. Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, the representatives of all humanity, were put into the Garden of Eden and told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve chose poorly and sin, suffering, and death came roaring into the world. And that story is hovering in the background of our whole text for tonight. So Romans 5.12 tells us that sin entered the world through one man, and death came into the world through sin, and in that way death came to all people because all sinned. We all die because Adam sinned, and we all die because we sinned. That's pretty clear in this verse. But where people start to disagree is how Adam's sin spreads to everybody else. There's a variety of views out there, but the basic question, the basic division is whether sin is a choice that everybody makes or whether sin is a condition that everybody inherits as part of being Adam's descendant. Do we start out neutral, so to speak, and does everybody choose to sin or is sin a condition in which we automatically, unavoidably live? Now, some people, quite a number of Christians, say that sin spreads through each individual's choice. So people who follow this approach believe that everyone who is born as a human being is sort of like a second Adam or a second Eve. Everybody is faced with the ultimate choice between good and evil, and everybody freely decides for themselves which way to go. 
Sin spreads through choice. Sin spreads through imitation, people say. And there's certainly some appeal to that picture. If sin comes to us only through our choice, then we are the masters of our destiny. In this way of seeing things, you are truly free to do as you like. You are the master of your choices, and you and you alone are the one responsible for what happens to you. Now, this view has a lot of traction with us, especially as North Americans. Our culture is really, really individualistic. We really want to make our own choices. We want to say that we can define everything about our lives. And so it's appealing to us to be able to say, yeah, I am able to make this ultimate choice. But that idea, that option, that view, that sin is just a choice that people make or don't make doesn't mesh with the Bible or with the real world very well. The reality of our world is that everybody sins. Every single human being has their failings and their faults. Every single human being suffers the effects of sin. We don't look at the world and see some people who sin and some people who don't. When we look at the world in this way, everybody is a villain. Some people commit great, big, loud, and proud sins, and some people major in sneaky, quick, little, not-too-obvious sins, but everybody sins. It just doesn't work to say, to say that everybody just experiences sin and enters into death by virtue of their own individual choices. There is something more going on with that. Sin is something more communal, more corporate, something that we're born into. And a lot of other cultures have an easier time seeing this than we do in North America. The ancient Greeks, for example, have the story of Pandora and Pandora's box, and that was one of their explanations for how evil came into the world. Now, there's several versions of the Pandora story. You may have heard different ones. But the basic idea is that Pandora was the first woman ever created. The gods made her and sent her out into the world, and the high god Zeus gave her this jar, or sometimes we call it a box, and he said, don't open it. It's sealed up. Whatever you do, do not open that jar. And of course, even though Pandora was told not to open the thing, pretty quickly curiosity got the better of her, and she unsealed this jar. And out of that jar came roaring all kinds of evil. Disease, sickness, death, everything evil in the world came flying out of that jar and spread throughout the world. And Pandora at that point tried to catch all those evils and shove them back in there, but they got away from her. And they spread to all of humanity and to the whole world. Evil could never get put back in the box. And ever since that time, death and evil have reigned in the world. Now in the Pandora story, one person's choice changed the game for everybody. The Greeks didn't tell the story that Zeus gave everybody a jar and told everybody not to open it, and your choice defined your destiny. Instead, they told the story that one person way back when was given a choice, and the effects of that person's choice mattered for everybody who came after them. Everybody who came after Pandora got to live and die with the effects of that jar being opened. Now, obviously, there are a lot of differences between the myth of Pandora and the history of Adam, but you see a similar story arc there, and you see that repeated in a lot of the mythologies and the stories that people around the world tell. The first humans are given a divine command not to do something. They do the forbidden thing, and terrible misery and evil and sin result. And everybody who comes after that initial stage suffers the consequences, whether they like it or not. 
sin and death don't just come to people because they choose it. Somehow, some way, all of us were steeped in sin from the moment that Adam first sinned. Adam unleashed sin and death on the world, and the effects of his, of his actions impact what we do, but it also impacts who we are. Sin is just part of the post-fall condition of humanity. And people use a different, you know, a different variety of images to talk about this. Some people talk about it almost like it's a genetic thing. Just like there's some things that parents pass down, certain physical traits and tendencies, somehow guilt and sin just automatically get passed down to all of Adam's descendants. And other people use the image more of an infection. When Adam disobeyed God, he contracted the illness of sin, and that leads to death. And that sickness gets irresistibly passed on to all of his descendants. One of the favorite ways that reformed people have had of talking about this has been a covenant or a contract. Adam was our head. He was our representative. He was our guy. He was our president. He was our patriarch. And when he decided to sin, he made a decision on behalf of all of us. When Adam chose to sin, because all of us were in Adam, because he was our guy, all of us too became involved in sin. So sin isn't just a choice that we make. Sin is an inheritance that falls to us. It's an infection that we've caught. It's part of the deal that comes with being human. Whether we like it or not, we are broken people. We aren't basically good people who somehow inexplicably do bad things. We are fundamentally flawed and twisted beings. And those flaws, that twistedness, always, 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 one way or another, shows up in our lives. Humans were created good, but when Adam fell, the whole human race got broken. We are all infected by sin. And it's easy sometimes for us to look at Adam, and we were talking about this in college once, and one of my roommates said, why did Adam eat the stupid fruit? Why did he have to do that stupid, stupid thing? And it's easy for us to point the finger, but the reality of the matter is that Adam, well, Adam was our head. Adam was our guy. And all of us probably would have made the same choice. And certainly all of us have made the same kind of choice. We've all sinned. The roots of the human tree went bad with Adam, but so every per human person is sinful. But at the same time, all of us choose to sin. Adam's disobedience made us all subject to sin and death, but our own disobedience continues to multiply sin and death in the world. Sin is a condition that we are born into, first of all, but it's also a choice that we make. Sin is our condition. Sin is also our choice. So if we go on to verses 13 and 14, Romans starts talking about the law. And we'll look today a bit at what the law does for us humans who are caught in this sinful condition. And the way ta Paul talks about the law is a bit perplexing there. Verse 13 almost seems to say, before God gave the law to Moses... He didn't count people's sin against them. But then verse 14 goes the opposite direction and says, death reigned in the world from Adam to Moses. But Paul wants us to understand that sin and death reigned over humanity ever since the time of Adam. But he also wants us to understand that the coming of the law really did change some things. Sin has been in the world ever since Adam's fall. That's not really up for debate. Death has reigned over humanity for ages and ages. But what the law did was it made clear to people 
that they were sinful. The law, the instructions, the rules that God gave to his people made it really, really clear that they weren't doing it right. The law showed people their sin. Now we talk about the law of God having several uses. One use is to help people know how to follow God, how to obey him. Another use is to restrain the evil in the world. But along with that, one reason that God gave the law and the reason that Paul highlights here is that we need to be shown our sin. We are so sinful. Sin is a condition that we are so deeply into that we don't even recognize it sometimes. Deep, deep down in our heart of hearts, all, humans being, all human beings know that something is wrong with them. But we love to hide our sin. We love to cover up our sinfulness. We love to paint over it. We sweep it under the rug. We pretend that it's not really all that bad. All of us are a little bit like Pandora, trying to shove evil back in the box and put the lid on the thing and pretend that everything is okay again. But that just doesn't most people have probably heard the story of Gulliver's travels, where Gulliver goes out and he gets shipwrecked in this land of the Lilliputians, all these little people who are maybe six inches high. And in the original book, he has some adventures there, he goes back to England, and then he sails out again, and he ends up shipwrecked in the land of the giants. And these giants are huge. If the Lilliputians were maybe six inches tall, these giants are maybe 60, 70, 80 feet tall. They are huge. And Gulliver has a whole other set of adventures in that country, but in that section of the original book, there's just a couple pages, kind of a throwaway section, where it talks about how since Gulliver was so small compared to the giants, he could see much more precisely than they could. And so he could see all kinds of little pimples and moles and skin blemishes that the giants couldn't see. When Gulliver looked at these huge giants that others said, oh, this, this man is really handsome. This woman is really beautiful. If you look in the whole kingdom, you won't find someone else who looks this good. But when Gulliver looked at those people, he was overwhelmed by the sight of all the little sores on their face, all the little spots they had, all the little moles that the other giants didn't notice, but that he did. The people themselves couldn't see what was wrong with them, but Gulliver's eyes picked up on all kinds of nasty imperfections. The law takes what we try to ignore and it blows it up so that we have to face what is really there. The law is like a magnifying glass or like a projector. If I just hold a page of notes up here, it's pretty hard for you to read what's going on. But the things that we put up on the screen, the things that we project big, those things are clear to all of us. The projector of the law. It takes the sin that we try to hide away. It takes the stuff that we try to minimize. It takes the things we try to keep small and it makes it big. It puts our sin in front of us for all of us to see those things that we've squashed down, that we've ignored, that we've denied, that we've turned our eyes away from. The law takes those things and it makes us look. The law shows us how sinful we really are. It brings light to our lives. It magnifies the truth and it makes our trespasses obvious and unavoidable. So, so far, our text has told us that sin is a condition that we inherit from Adam, as well as a choice that we make, and it's shown us that the law comes to us and it makes our sin very, very clear. Verse 14 tells us that death reigned in the world ever since the sin of Adam. But then in verse 15, Paul again makes one of those great turns in the book of Romans, and verse 15 to 21 tells us a bunch of parallels between Adam, the old man, and Christ, the new man. 
both Adam and Christ lived as our representatives, but they passed very, very different gifts onto us. The trespass of Adam gave an inheritance of death to all of his descendants. The gift that Adam gives us is guilt. We were born into death. We were bent towards sin. All of us share in Adam's sinful condition, and all of us follow in his sinful choices. But Romans tells us that the gift of Christ isn't like the trespass of Adam. The trespass led to death. The gift of Christ leads to life. The grace that we find in Christ alone wipes our sins away. After Adam, all of us were infected by sin, all of us had this condition, and all of us continued to sin more and more. But Christ came and he wiped out our guilt. Christ came and he cleans up the corruption of those sins. We were made sinners in Adam. We are made righteous in Christ. The gift of Christ comes and it fixes what Adam wrecked. And that by itself is an amazing gift of grace. But Christ's work goes much farther than Adam's ever did. Christ didn't just come and undo the effects of Adam's sin. He did that, but he also did a lot more. It's not like Adam's wrongdoing and Christ's righteousness are equal and opposite. Christ's work was so much more than Adam's. Imagine, if you will, that a great artist is commissioned to work on a statue for a town square. And this statue is going to define the identity of the town. It's going to witness to the greatness of that artist. It is going to be a beautiful thing. And so this great artist works hard. He puts this beautiful, wonderful statue together. They put it up in the town square, and everybody rejoices. But after a few weeks, some vandals come to town, and they wreck the thing. They knock the statue off the platform. They break some pieces off. They scrawl some graffiti on it, and they take off laughing. You can see a few traces of the original goodness of the thing there, but it is wrecked. So the town council calls the artist to come back and repair the statue, but instead of making the same thing over again, the artist does something more. Instead of making another piece of art to leave there, the artist himself comes and he takes up residence in that town square. He spends day after day, week after week, working there. He fixes up the storefront, he plants new trees, he redoes everything, and he draws other people into his work. He helps them to see the world with his artist eyes. He shows them the beauty that's there and the beauty that could be there. He draws other people's work into his own. He finds just the right place for everybody's gifts to shine. And over time, that whole square and that whole town are transformed by the artist's own presence. The original statue was a work of art, but the artist's presence and his continued work were truly transformative. Now, Adam had the opportunity to obey God or not. He chose to disobey. He wrecked the human race. But Christ came, and he made humanity into something more than it had ever been before. Christ was born as a human being just like all of us, except he was totally without the guilt and the corruption of sin. And Jesus chose to obey God every single moment of his human life. Jesus lived a whole, complete, perfect human life, always obedient to God, always bringing glory to God. Now this obedience is especially clear in Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection 
And if we think about the obedience of Christ, that's often where we go, to those few days, to that ultimate sacrifice and the resurrection. But that's not all that Jesus' obedience was. Jesus' whole life was marked by obedience and submission to God's will. We call this the active obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ. Every day, every hour, every moment, every week, every year, every decade of his life, Jesus chose moment by moment to actively obey the Father, to live a perfect life. If Adam's life was a work of art that was erected in a minute, Christ's life was a work of art and obedience perfected over years and decades. The whole life of Christ was a beautiful example of obedience to God. And because of that, Christ's life is a model for our own. Adam's sin plunged us all into death. Christ's lifelong active obedience, along with his suffering and death on the cross, cleans out the sickness in our souls, and it opens the way for us to live our lives for God forever. And in Christ, that new life takes on glorious, different forms for each of us. In Christ, all of us are images of God, and all of us image God in the particular ways that he made us. Each of our lives is a work of art that God is shaping with us to bring him glory. We make plenty of mistakes these days. We don't always see the big picture. We don't always get things quite right. We don't get to see the beauty of the finished product all the time. But God is at work in you to make you a glorious representation, a glorious image, a glorious reflection of his glory. The gift and grace of righteousness in Christ doesn't just take us from death to some neutral state. Christ's grace, Christ's gift, puts us on a journey of faith. And in that journey, we keep growing and growing, and our lives come more and more to reflect God's glory. God is making each of us fit to live as a king or queen. God is making each of us fit to reign forever with him. Through Christ's work, we become God's representatives, his images, his people who do his work and who reflect his glory. Where sin abounded, grace superabounds. Where sin increased under Adam and increased in all of our lives, grace increases all the more under Christ. The gift is always greater than the trespass. Christ is greater than Adam. So this section of Romans gives us some really bad news and some really good news. And we need to hear both of them very clearly. First of all, we need to hear, we need to understand, we need to accept that we are more sinful than we ever believed possible. Sin is not just something we do. Sin is not something we can ever get ourselves free from. Sin is part of who we are as human beings. Sin is a condition, it's an infection, it's an inheritance that we're born into. In Adam, our sin abounds. That's the bad news. We are more sinful than we ever believed, and even more sinful than we want to believe is possible. But the good news in Christ undoes that. The good news in Christ is that we are more fully forgiven more fully healed than we could ever believe possible. 
Christ takes away all our guilt. Christ undoes our death. Christ gives us new life. And Christ makes us able to reign with him, with God himself. And in the story of Pandora, after all the evil has escaped and taken over the world, Pandora looks into the jar, and in the bottom, sort of floating down there somewhere, is this one last thing, and that's hope. Somehow the Greeks felt like even for all the evil, all the sin in the world, for all the disease, for everything that was wrong, there was still somehow hope. Now, they didn't have any real ground for that hope, but there was, there was hope, they would say to each other. But in the story of the Bible, yeah, we see evil being unleashed in the world. We see that human beings are born into this condition of sin and despair and death. But we aren't just left with some vague hope that maybe things will turn out okay. In Adam, sin and death enter into all of us. But in Christ, new health, new life, new hope comes to us, his people. Jesus Christ, every day of his life and in his death and resurrection, fought and defeated all the powers of evil in the world and all the powers of evil that live within us. Where sin abounded, grace superabounds in Christ. And in Christ we have this hope of new life. God is making us into something more glorious than we could ever imagine. You someday will reign as a king or queen on God's behalf. God is making your life into something more beautiful than you can ever imagine. We live in the condition of sin. Life is hard. But as we look toward the new life that God brings us, as we continue to walk with him, God makes us into his images, into representations, to representations of who he is. What more could we ask for? What more could we hope for?